0: This is Nicole from our nursery. You know, when that little one comes into your family, is there any way to prepare for the task of being a parent? I mean, mechanically, you can get ready. You can paint the nursery pink or blue or yellow if you're not sure what's coming your way. You can put the little plastic plugs in all the electrical outlets and check off all the things and all the poisons are up high or in locked cabinets, and you can say, okay, we're ready for a baby. But anybody who's had a little one knows that doesn't make you ready for a baby, does it? And then you wonder, why did God trust me, us, with such an awesome responsibility? To be sure, they're some of God's most choice servants who never enter parenthood. They do great things, things they couldn't do otherwise for God's kingdom if they had to take care of little ones. But for whatever reason, when that little child comes in your family through birth or adoption, you know that God has chosen you. Not because you're smarter than anybody else, not because you're better than anybody else. For some reason, he's chosen you to raise this little one of his. Do you remember the first time you held your baby? Do you remember that at that moment you you began to understand what love really is in some ways? I don't think I ever understood how my parents loved me until I held Ryan. And then I got it. Understood sacrifice, priority, love. I don't think I ever really understood how much God loved me until I held my girls. And then to think He gave His child for me. It's a a big responsibility. And yet we see today through Hannah and Samuel and Elkanah and Eli that our little ones are, are not something to be grasped and clutched and held on to, that we don't own them. We're stewards. We're temporary caretakers. We are raising them to let them go. And from the very beginning, it is our task to give them back to God. Our text this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 1 is a story about a a man by the name of Elkanah. And Elkanah has two wives. One of them has children and one of them does not. Hannah has no children, and Panetta, we'll call her Penny from here out. Penny does. Hannah does a remarkable thing. In her barrenness, we will see she cries out to God and says, God, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you for as long as AS HE LIVES. LETTING OUR CHILDREN GO IS NEVER EASY, IS IT? BEVERLY BECKON REFLECTS UPON WHEN HER LAST CHILD WENT AWAY TO COLLEGE, SHE WRITES. IT'S NOT DEATH WHEN HE WENT TO COLLEGE. IT'S NOT A TRAGEDY, BUT IT'S NOT NOTHING EITHER. I feel like this little boy walked out the door today, not the fine young man that we raised. Today is hard, very hard. I wasn't wrong about their leaving. My my husband kept telling me I was wrong, that it wasn't the end of the world when the first child and then the second child and then at last the third child packed his bags and left for college. It was the end of something. It was the end of Can you pick me up and hold me, Mom? What's for dinner? Or later, can you give me a ride to the mall?" Beverly writes, I was the sun and they were the planets, and there was life on those planets, whirling nonstop plans and parties and friends coming and going and ideas and dreams and the phone ringing and door slamming. I got to beam down on them as the sun to watch, to glow. And then they were gone, one after the other. They'll be back, my husband said, and he was right. They came back, but he was wrong, too. They came back for intervals, not for always, not planets anymore making their predictable orbits, but rather unpredictable like shooting stars in the sky. Always, is what you miss, always knowing where they are, at school, at band practice, at a ball game, at her friend's, always looking at the clock midday and anticipating the door opening, the sigh, the smile, the laugh, the shrug. How was school for years answered with way too much to tell and then for years answered with no to tell at all? always knowing his friends always knowing her favorite show his favorite food what she wore to school what he was thinking how she feels Beverly continues My friend's best twins girls left for Roger Williams University yesterday they are her fourth and fifth the twins She's been down this road 3 times before you think it would get easier I don't know what I'm going to do without them. She has said that every day for months now. I don't know what I'm going to do without them. And I've said nothing because, well, really? What is there to say? A chapter ends, a new chapter begins... One door closes, another door opens. The best thing we can do for our children is give them wings and let them fly. Oh, she says, I've read all those things when my children left home. But saying goodbye to your children and their childhood is much harder than those little pithy sayings try to make it. Because that's what going to college is, is saying goodbye. It's not death, it's not tragedy, but it's not nothing either. To grow a child, a body changes. It needs more sleep. It rejects food that it once craved. To let a child go, a body changes too. It sighs and it cries and it feels weightless and heavy all at the same time. The drive home without them is the worst. And then the first few days, and then it gets better, and then the kids call and come home and bring their friends, and the house fills with energy again, and life goes on. But after all these years, I miss them still. The children, they were. The dinner table. They're sitting with me on the couch. Talking on the phone. Sleeping in their rooms. Safe. Home. Mine. The most frightening endeavor any of us ever undertake is letting our children go. But that's what Hannah does in our story today. Hannah had no children. Penny had children. Look at verse 2. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penny. And Penny had children. But Hannah had no children. Thus the problem Verse 3, we understand that every year they made the trek 15 miles up to Shiloh, a pilgrimage of worship and sacrifice and feast and festival. It was a personal occasion. The whole family went, the wives and Penny and all of Penny's children. Notice who they worship, verse 3. To sacrifice to the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Eli and his two sons were officiating priests. And the highlight of the pilgrimage every year was the feast after the sacrifice. Now, no worshiper ever got back his guilt offering, but rather a portion of the peace offering was returned to the family. It was enjoyed at a meal as a celebration. Penny apparently used this time to score points over Hannah. Maybe even the merry chatter of all of Penny's little ones was a reminder to Hannah that her womb was barren. And Penny was so puffed up and proud, a parent to be sure. And in antiquity, the great blessing of a woman was to have many children, considered a blessing from God. But Penny would provoke her. Look at verse 4. The day came that Elkanah sacrificed. He would give portions to Penny, his wife, and to notice all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened, look at verse 7, year after year after year. I can imagine Penny saying something like this. Oh, being pregnant all the time, Hannah, I am so tired. Could you do an extra portion of the chores? You don't know what it feels like to have morning sickness. Girl, please get up and help. Oh, guess what? I don't know. Will it be a man child this time? Will it be a woman child this time? I don't know. Want to help me guess, Hannah, what I'm having this time? Do you know how the Lord has blessed me again? Notice, year after year, poor Hannah. All the rest of the family excited to go to Shiloh, ready to go and sacrifice and celebrate the feast. But Hannah, it was just the preparations themselves, reminded her of what she was going to have to go through. Of course, it was bad theology then that God had somehow punished Hannah. It's bad theology now, of course, but that didn't stop Penny from running her mouth. And so it was year after year. Look at verse 10. And Hannah, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, and she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and look at, listen to her prayer. God, remember me and forget not thy maidservant, but will give thy maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. God, if you will give me a boy, I will give the boy back to you. She kept praying, her lips were moving. There was no sound coming out of her mouth. It was a a prayer of the heart and not so much a prayer of vocal words. And Eli, the priest, sees her and assumes she must be in a, a drunken stupor, that mumbling of the mouth and no words coming out. And he tells her to go home and get rid of her drunkenness. Oh, no, she says, I'm not drunk. I've come to the Lord with a prayer. Look at Eli, verse 17. The Lord answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in her sight. The woman went her way, and she ate, and her face was no longer sad. Look at verse 15. She is oppressed in spirit, and now she is no longer sad. Earlier, despite the best portion, the double portion of the sacrificial meat, she will not eat. And now she goes, washes her face, and eats. There's a mystery, isn't there? And that cycle of failure that can be broken in just a moment... Like the woman at the well who spoke with Jesus, it was at that very moment when everything changed for her. Many people can look back to the day like Hannah could look back to that day at the place of worship, mumbling the prayer, and the priest saying, it will be granted for you. The woman at the well can look at the time that she sat down beside this rabbi, this Jew. There are a lot of people who can point to that moment in their life when all the cycle of failure ended. It was all over, and God remembered, and God blessed, and everything changed. They look at that day and say, that's the day right there. I will never forget that day. She asked for a male child, which would be normal for her culture, God, if you'll just give him to me, I'll give him back to you. I'm willing to give up the ability to raise him. He will go and serve the temple. I will give him back to you. In this sense of mystery, nothing had changed. She goes back to the festival, still with no child, but yet everything had changed. No longer sorrowful of spirit. She would be, as the writer of Hebrews said, she'd experience the evidence of things not seen. Hannah realized what we all ultimately have to realize, and that is our children belong to God. We love our children so much and we don't want to let them go. We want to grab them and clutch them and hold them back. But a baby is always a gift to be returned to God. We are simply caretakers of not ours, but his little one. The moment he's born, the moment she arrives, it's a process of letting go. We celebrate first steps. We try to teach first words. Mamas always try to teach mama as the first word. Daddies always try to teach dada as the first word. Saw a fellow yesterday, his third child said, the first two said mama first, but the third one said daddy first. Mine all said mama first. We celebrate. First steps and first words, and then we're riding a, a bicycle, and then we're graduating from kindergarten, and in that process, we realize we are working our ways out of a job that our children are not properly to be possessed, but rather they are their gods alone. And I see it more today than I have ever seen it. Helicopter moms and dads. Man, we want to hold on, don't we? We want to be in complete orbit over her every little breath and his every little move, and nothing and no one is good enough, and we try to manage and schedule and manipulate their lives in all the wrong ways. Our children are not something to possess, but something to let go of. Dell Hansen-Burke remembers a conversation with a friend at work. The friend's biological clock was ticking, and she said, my husband and I are taking a survey. The, the years were limited. Do you think at last we ought to have a child? It will change your life, she replied. But keeping her tone neutral... Oh, I know it'll change our life. No more sleeping in on Saturdays and no more spontaneous vacations, but that's not what I mean at all, Dale says. I tried to decide how much I would tell her. Should I tell her what she'll never learn in childbirth classes, that the physical wounds of child-rearing will heal, but becoming a mother will leave an emotional wound so raw that she will be forever vulnerable? She'll never pick up a newspaper again without thinking, that could have been my boy. That could have been. But the grace of God, my girl. I look at her manicured nails and her stylish suit and I wanted to say to her, no matter how sophisticated you might be, that being a mother will make you primitive and the cry of your child will make you like a she-bear and you'll drop your best crystal and you'll go running to see what's wrong. No matter how many years you've invested in your career, there'll be some time when you're heading into a meeting, you'll remember the smell of your baby. It'll be all you can do not to run home and make sure he's okay. Looking at my attractive friend, I want to assure her that she'll eventually shed the the pounds of pregnancy, but she'll never feel the same about herself, that her life and perfection, which is so important now, will mean nothing, and she would give it up all in a second to take care of her little one. She might just love her husband in ways she never imagined. I mean, how handsome a man looks when he carefully powders a baby's bottom. You never thought that would be romantic before. I would just say to her the exhilaration you'll feel when he first hits a baseball or, or she takes her first dance lessons or when the baby feels the fur of the dog and gives that belly laugh. And then I give her tears in my eyes, trying to hold back because I know she can't get it yet. I want to say, you'll never, ever regret it. Verses 19 through 27. Elkanah is going back up to Shiloh to worship and Hannah says, I'm not going anymore. I will keep Samuel, what she names the boy, names him that because God has remembered her. I will keep Samuel here until he is weaned, and when he is weaned, I'll go back. Maybe three years. Maybe she skips three festivals. By the time Samuel's three or four, they go back and she takes the bull, she takes the wine, she takes the flower, and she says to Eli, I ask God to remember And he did. And I said to him, if you'll but bless your maidservant with a boy, I will give the boy back to you. Here he is. Isn't that what we all do? Maybe not at four, maybe not even at 14, but isn't it all a process, parenting of being Hannah and letting go? It tells us a little later in the story that every year she went back up to Shiloh to see Samuel and she took him a new set of clothes. I've imagined in my mind another little boy born in the village about the same time as Samuel and she gauging Samuel's size by that lad. Come here. Come here, Joshua. Hold still. I better go a few more inches for Samuel this year. I bet he's growing just like you. God blessed her. Three more boys, two girls. But even those two, those three, girls and the boys, is a giving back to God. In reality, every mom and every dad is a Hannah, and every baby is a Samuel, They're not something to grasp and clutch and manipulate and control. They're a blessing from God. We didn't get them because we're brilliant, because we're good. For whatever reason, God chose you for that one. It is your job. From the day of delivery to give your little ones back to God. Let us pray. Oh God, give us your grace and your peace. Help us to recommit ourselves this morning to being godly moms and godly dads for our little ones. Realize ultimately they're not a possession of ours, but rather they are yours. You've entrusted them to us to give back to you for your kingdom. Father, maybe someone here this morning realizes for the first time how much God loves him or how much God loves her. They think about their love for their child or their grandchild, and they realize that they are a child of God. Maybe there are others, oh God, who would want to join this congregation, which makes covenant with all of our families, that we will turn you into Hannah's training your children in the ways of God's kingdom, his values, his priorities, his servanthood, his sacrifice. God, I can't help, but when I preach a sermon like this, think about all through the years in so many different ways, the little ones you've called out to the mission field and to the pastor and the staff and and laypersons who serve with all zeal all over the world from this church. Calls for 125 years. our, Our parents have been Hannah's and have given the little ones back to you the name of Jesus we pray